Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Jason Shulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today on the podcast... Hello there, I'm Jason Shulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today on the podcast is Sarah Holcomb. She's a senior research fellow at the University of Queensland and a visiting fellow at the Australian National University. She's here to talk about her new book, Remote Freedoms, Politics, Personhood, and Human Rights in Aboriginal Central Australia. It's published by Stanford University Press in 2018. Sarah, welcome to the show. Hello. Lovely to be here. Well, it's great to have you on. So, Sarah, let's start with a a question that really, you know, seems like it might be simple, but is actually quite a difficult question, and that is, what exactly are human rights? Oh, yes. Um, It is an interesting question because... In Western liberal democratic countries, they are ubiquitous in many ways. Um, they make up institutions, they make up politics. Um, I guess these ideas of fundamental rights and freedoms are something that, that we live with all the time. Um, but one of my interests in these is how they actually impact on marginal people's lives, people who may otherwise um, seem to be subordinated or, or find it difficult to access these rights. Um, but perhaps just to go back, um, it's interesting that this year is 70 years um, of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, when that was um, developed by Eleanor Roosevelt and others across the world. And uh, in some ways, uh, revisiting this issue after 70 years is quite pertinent because there's often a lot of critique around human rights, what their values are, what the point of them is, because they're so contested across the globe. Um, and a critical engagement with human rights is something that a lot of academics are uh, you know, increasingly interested in doing. And my work is an ethnography of human rights, um, is one of the first of its kind, or the first of its kind in Australia, to actually take these concepts seriously and realise that they do diverse work. They're not, um, even though they're ubiquitous, often, you know, this idea of, of ubiquity means that they are actually hidden in a way. We do take them for granted. So there's some detective work this book that this book does. You mentioned that you, um, you know, research this as an ethnography. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you did. What What is the field work that you did for this research? Um, well, I come from quite an applied background. Um, when I was, as soon as I finished an undergrad in anthropology at the University of Sydney, a four-year um, degree, I moved to Alice Springs to work in um, for the Northern, for the Central Land Council initially, which was um, an activist um, land rights body um, that works through um, the Aboriginal Land Rights Act in the Northern Territory. Um, so I worked up there to, to work for the Central Land Council and then I did a PhD in the same region in remote central Australia and then I worked for the Northern Land Council. Um, so so I guess for me, um, I bring a very applied and pragmatic approach to working in this field and also I have 
long-term relationships with Aboriginal people there and began to learn the language um, when I first moved there in my early 20s. Um, so in that way, it's quite a, a personal, dialogical understanding of what these concepts mean in that place and how they impact on people's lives um, for, you know, for positive and for negative um, because there's a lot of assumptions um, which we'll talk about, no doubt, um, and obviously that's what the book's about as well. There's a lot of assumptions in um, in this idea of personhood embodied in human rights. Can you tell us briefly uh, about, you know, the area in Central Australia where you have had, you know, a lot of experience about the geography and about the people? Yes. Well, um, I work with Pintabi Lurcha people. Um, they call themselves Anangu, Um and it's a Western Desert language that is west of Alice Springs, over into, um, so it's in the Northern Territory. So this is very much in smack bang in the middle of Australia. Um, so they're west of Alice Springs. It goes across into Western Australia, this language block, down into Uluru, Karajuta. Um, people might be aware of that place as Ayers Rock, but the proper name is Uluru, Karajuta. So those people down there speak a similar language. Um, it's very remote. It's classified as very remote um, by this um, uh, the ABS Australian Bureau of Census and um, very sparsely populated areas. Um, these particular communities I work in, Pukanya, has about it's um, very mobile population, but only about 450 people. Um, and Mount Liebig, about 300 people. Um, and these regions were also the last regions to feel the effects of colonisation. Um, so these people. Uh, still speak their first language, um, Pintabi Lurich, um, and likewise all their neighbours speak different languages, and there's about 1,200 speakers of this particular language um, across a range of communities. So it doesn't seem like a lot of people, but these people um, are also in some ways um, at the forefront in holding Aboriginal culture because they still very tightly hang on to their traditions, um, conduct ceremony. Um, they know the names of bush foods and how to survive in a very, very harsh environment. That region was apparently, according to archaeologists, the most sparsely inhabit inhabitable region on the planet. So they're extremely, um, you know, hardy people, if you like. Um, I don't mean to essentialise, but people are pretty stoic in this region. Um, and it gets very, very hot. It's so it's an arid zone, obviously. Um, and uh, yeah, I could probably talk a bit more, but perhaps we should get into other <laughs> less pragmatic elements. Sure. So let's let's. You mentioned the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and you also mentioned uh, you know the local Aboriginal languages. So tell us a little bit about your first chapter, which looks at you know the translation of. The UDHR into these, you know, local languages and 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 the words that that may or may not be available. Right. Well, when I first undertook this research, um, which was an Australian Research Council sponsored project, my interest uh, when I was at the ANU, my interest was actually in the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. That was my original focus um, because it had been um, it had only been endorsed by the Australian government in two thousand and nine, uh, two years after. Um, it was um, endorsed by the General Assembly. And I thought, wow, there's a bit of a disjunct here between this Declaration of Rights and the social fact of this place, you know, where I've worked over many years, over more than 20 years. Um, 
And and so I went out there really wanting to talk with Anangor, um, you know, community leaders and other people about uh, what their understandings were of this, you know, global resource. Um, and was it mobilising in this region? What effect potentially could it have or was it already having? Um, because they do have... The Central Land Council um, is a very activist body in many ways, but were they even engaging with this with this document? And I realised when I was talking with people, because um, I live in Canberra, which is, you know, almost 3,000 kilometres away on the East Coast and I was flying to and from Pupanya and Mount Liebig to talk with people, um, I realised that I had to take a step back, that actually not only did people not really know about the UD, the UN DRIP, the Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples, but when I started sort of drilling down, they also, very few people actually heard of these words, universal human rights. So I realised, well, actually, well, there's a range of elements to this. One is that human rights underpin Indigenous rights. So, you know, you have to have a discussion around human rights before you can think about Indigenous rights because in this region, Indigenous rights are usually associated with land rights, um, property rights, and those sorts of rights are seen to be in, to embody cultural rights, if you like. So there'd been, as I understood, there'd been a, a real decoupling of broader understandings of human rights, you know, civil rights, political rights, um, and Indigenous rights because the focus had only been on land rights. So people here are actually very fortunate because they have inalienable freehold title to their land, um, which is pretty unique even globally. Um, it's a very strong form of land tenure. It cannot be bought or sold. It's collective, collectively held land. So they've actually had that for, for many years in this region. Um, so, but when I realised I was talking with people, people were focused on land rights, and I had to go back to human rights and have a discussion around this. And when I started just generally saying, okay, well, let's let's um, uh, translate these ideas around freedom, around um, the rule of law, around dignity, conscience, you know, the concept of rights itself. That was just playing around the edges. I realised because it was it was too superficial. So then I had to go back and I realised that I had to translate or interpret and then translate working with Aboriginal interpreters and also I ended up working with a linguist. Um, actually had to translate the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as a matter of first principles. So that actually became a really significant part of the project. It took a lot longer than I thought and was way more interesting and way more complex as an anthropological project, not just a linguistic project than I could ever have imagined, actually. Um, and so in the process of doing that, the discussion became a very much an intercultural discussion around what these ideas and principles mean in this local context um, relative to these ideas as these abstract, universal, supposedly global principles. So that became a very interesting exercise. And I ended up working, um, well, I I, um, I did bring two um, interpreters, two Aboriginal interpreters who were trained interpreters to Canberra for two weeks, uh, a couple. Um, Lance MacDonald and Sheila Joyce Dixon came to Canberra with me for two weeks and we sat down and we had really wide-ranging discussions around the philosophy underpinning human rights, the history of human rights. It was very much a global discussion. And we came up with a draft. But the problem is, of course, that I'm not a linguist. I dabble in sociolinguistics, and it's a very interesting field, But and, and I've got a familiarity with the language, but obviously, you know, linguistics is its own expertise. So after I developed up this draft, I, I then approached 
this extraordinary man, Ken Hansen, who's in his 80s now, um, and he was the author um, of the Bible, the uh, the Bible, the, the, the translation of the Bible, <laughs> he's not God, um, as a Lutheran linguist. Um, uh, so he's that's already gone through two iterations, um, and he was out there also working on the third, um, you know, different generations. And um, so he was an extraordinary um, person to work with. And just out of interest too, it's um, the, the Lutherans have always been very active in learning the local language and translating the Bible into local languages, and that's not the case with other um, mis- forms of missiology or missionary sort of approaches to this. Um, and so actually working closely with language, you are able to um, engage actively with this inner spirit that people have because culture is so deeply tied up with language and so that was a very interesting process so so chapter chapter one is a lot about this intercultural discussion and and the way some of these concepts cannot be translated um and shall i give you an example of one or two concepts that just don't render <laughs> sure that'd be great in intercultural terms um well one of them is this concept of freedom um, and um, and when uh, initially in the first draft of the translation, I um, I thought, okay, well, even if this word freedom is not commonly um, talked about, it's still a very powerful word to know for a range of reasons. So we had freedom in there. But then when Ken Hansen sat down and we talked about this, um, he's like, oh, some fellow they can't hear that word, and, and Lance completely agreed. So we dropped that. But then when I looked at um, the work of, of other linguists who, who are interested in this idea of keywords, keywords which embody key cultural concepts, um, freedom also is not a word in Russian or Japanese or you know other indigenous or and including other indigenous languages as well. So so we had to drop this word. And then there are other words like dignity and rendering dignity um, in a local context was also very interesting because that then makes you think about notions of personhood and what what does give someone dignity. And in this Aboriginal context, uh, which is where personhood is very relational and sociocentric, it's not egocentric or individualistic to the same extent. It can be, but not to the same extent as, you know, Western notions of personhood. These notions of dignity were rendered very in very interesting ways. So I was given a gloss, and, and we couldn't obviously, it was very difficult to translate as a one-to-one, but if we were thinking about a gloss of this word, it was in relation to this notion of kurumuru, one who looks after the country. Um, kurumuru is like a policeman. It's a word for land manage, manager, and you get this relationship through your through your mother's side rather than through the patrilineal father's side. But kurumuru is a very important um, role in looking after land. So you get your dignity through being a good kudumuru for your country. You get your dignity in other ways were through practicing ceremony, being a good, you know, daughter and granddaughter and grandmother, and also your dignity through listening to the old people. So all these different ways of gaining dignity were very interesting and very revealing actually in contradistinction to the way this idea is understood. Um, you know, more generally 
and I think, you know, that although that's just one chapter in the book, it really um, nicely kind of summarizes a key theme, which is that, you know, human rights are not complete and, and there are alternative ways uh, of thinking about human dignity. Uh, so, Sarah, I want to thank you so much uh, for coming on the show today. That's Sarah Holcomb. Her new book is Remote Freedoms, Politics, Personhood and Human Rights in Aboriginal Central Australia. It's published by Stanford University Press in 2018. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>